psalmist said that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand is righteousness forevermore. I'm not sure if I quoted that perfectly, but it is the presence of God that makes the difference in our lives, isn't it? Let's thank him for it. God, thank you for your presence. God, thank you that, that you dwell in the hearts of your children and um, that you are with us and that you, you, are, you not only go before us, that you go with us. Um, it's amazing. And, and so, Lord, we're so grateful for your presence here. Continue to uh, direct each of our thoughts and actions this morning as we, um, as we open your word and, and uh, as we have a baptism in every part of it. Lord, for you, all for your glory. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, before we, uh, before we get into the message, before we dismiss the kids, um, we'd like to have a baptism. And uh, Mariah Davis asked if, if she could be baptized. And if you were here a couple Sundays ago, I spoke on baptism. And um, if you were here, you remember me saying that this is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. So... What I'm going to do is I'm going to invite Mariah and Leon and Wanda to join me on stage. Um, Leon and Wanda have kind of, I, I don't know, you kind of just include Mariah in your family, right? And um, have for a long time. I don't, Mariah, how long have we known each other? I think you were about this high when I first, when I first met you and your sister, and I couldn't tell you apart. Oh, no, always have to ask Rochelle. She all, I'm always like, oh, 12 years. Rochelle's like, nope. All right, we're going to give you a microphone. All right. Um, so what I'd like for you to do, just take a couple minutes and um, share what was on your heart with asking to be baptized and maybe even a little bit of your, your story, and, um, and then we'll go through the process of baptism, okay? All right. Well, hello. My name is Mariah Davis. Um, so um, I've been thinking about this for a couple of years now, but... The time has finally come. Um, so, like Floyd said, I've been in this community for a while. Um, when me and Michaela was younger, we joined this thing called Kids Club. Which Michaela's my twin sister. We joined this thing called Kids Club, which is funny because looking back on my life, we lived in Chicago, and my mom moved us from Chicago to Iowa, and I thought it was the worst thing in the entire world. <laughs> because we had no idea where, I thought Iowa was in Illinois. I did not know Iowa was a different state. So, and so it was like, okay, you come. And we came and then my cousins went to this thing called Kids Club and it was something to do, so we went. And then we kind of liked it and then we um, met Rolanda, which she's a part of the Beachy family, then they family just kind of adopted me and Michaela and then that really made us want to go to Kids Club and really made us want to want to go to Sunnyside and so we started going there and like throughout the years I don't know if I would say we were Christians but we knew who God was and yeah and so we did that for a little bit um actually for a long bit um <laughs> and so after that the so graduated part of a lot of stuff that happened in this community whatever and then the Summer of 2016, graduated from high school, and so I joined basic training. Well, I joined the Army, I should say. Went to basic training, I was like, 
prayed every day, all of that fun stuff. And I was like, all right, God, cool. You know, and they was like, I want to get baptized. I was like, me, this is awesome. You know, finally had my, what do they call it? The, you know, like that, woo. <laughs> so, did that. And then that's when got baptized and went to AIT. And so, in basic, I went to church every Sunday, read my Bible. It was Pretty, like, I'll go back, honestly. It was a pretty nifty setup. Might as well get yelled at, but that's besides the point. Um, and so we went to AIT, and then I didn't have a community. And so I didn't have a community, and so, like, all of these thoughts came into my head. And so I decided that I was going to claim being, le being lesbian. So I did that. And then I came home in November of 2016. No, I came home October of 2016, and then November of 2016, my brother died. And when my brother died, that hit hard. Of course, if anyone has lost anyone that means anything to them, you know how hard death is. And for someone that was young, I blamed God. So in the course of me blaming God, I decided that I was going to do things that I know hurt God because I felt like he hurt me on purpose. I felt like it was very personal. So I decided to, well, to watch it. And then I got addicted. If y'all know what I'm talking about, I don't want to really say it because it's kids in here, but y'all catch my drift. And so I went down that road. Um, so through the course of all of that, God had shown me his love and his mercy. He placed people in my life to show me his love. A lot of these people are in this room, and it is so cool to just see how God, I didn't want anything to do with God because I felt like I dealt with the worst thing in my entire life, and how God, so anybody know me, know I love the song, Reckless Love, that song came out in 2017, and that was my song, and then, so you think about like the 99 sheep, and then like how God comes to find the one, and how they, they rejoice, and that, I just, that story, I feel like that story is me, and so, which I'm pretty sure a lot of us feel like that story is us, and so, yeah, so God used that and used a lot of people in this room to draw me back to him, and now Jesus is my homie, that's my best <laughs> friend, um, still struggle, but, you know, we human, not perfect. So, and yeah, so I was like, it's time to get baptized. Time to, you know, turn this up a notch. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. I'm so proud of you. Did that take too long? No, you didn't take too long. You did good. Um, good job. Why don't you step in the pool over there, and I've got a couple questions for you then. Okay. <laughs> I'll kind of pull myself together here. <laughs> okay, Mariah, in, the act, in this act of baptism, you are making a public statement to those in attendance in the unseen spiritual realms that your faith is in Christ, that you are done with the past, and you are stepping into a new identity in Christ. So the first question I have is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Have you trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins 
and the cleansing of your heart. Yes. And then the second question is, have you responded to Christ's call to follow, and do you surrender your will to his leading in all areas of your life? Yes. You can be seated there. Mariah, today, based on your public statement, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are called to walk in the newness of his life in you. Like I said a couple Sundays ago, I, I'm, I believe with all my heart that, I'm sorry, kids, we need to dismiss kids, don't we? All right. Let's, uh, kids, you are dismissed um, to go to your classes. Let me say a prayer for the kids as they go, okay? And then I'll also kind of transition into the message. Father, thank you for each of the kids this morning. God, I thank you for what you are doing in their lives. Um, <clears throat> thank you for each of the stories that, <coughs> excuse me, that are being written right now in each of these kids' lives. God, would you use this morning somehow in your sovereignty and in your goodness to continue to show them who you are, to reveal yourself to them. And then, Lord, we need, um, again, your spirit to speak to us as we open your word. We're trusting you again to open our hearts. Um, teach us what we don't know make us what we aren't, and um, open our eyes to what we can't see. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I was saying, that I, I believe we were in First Peter um, chapter 3, um, and we were talking about baptism right there toward the end of chapter 3, and if you're new here this morning, we are working our way through the book of 1 Peter. And when we get done with this, surprise, surprise, we're going to go to 2 Peter. And uh, so looking forward to heading over into that in the next couple months. <clears throat> but we were talking about baptism and how um, he says it saves you, not the actual act of baptism, but really the reason for it. He says not the washing of water, but the, but the reason for baptism, that it is, it is a statement of, I am done with the old, out with the old, and in with the new, that I want to make a change, and I'm trusting God to help me do that, and that that's the, the biblical purpose of baptism. So now we're getting into chapter 4 of 1 Peter. Um, Billy did a wonderful job with that first section, verses 1 through 6, last Sunday, I was not here last Sunday. I was in uh, Cedar Rapids with Maranatha Bible Church and shared a sermon there. And we're doing a little bit of a pulpit exchange. So Aaron Telecki, the pastor there at Maranatha Bible, will be here next Sunday. And, um, and will preach for us next Sunday. I'm really looking forward to that. 
But we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 7, and we're going to go to um, verse 11. He deals with this thing that we call um, the end of time. Like he starts with this idea that the earth as we know it is not always going to be here. And I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. I hope it's not new information for you that this planet that we occupy and all the things that are on it, and even, um, and we're going to get more into this in Second Peter, even the stars and the, the cosmic realm will not continue to exist as we know them forever. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here on that this morning because we're going to be looking at that more actively in Second Peter in the next couple months. But it's that idea that Peter starts out this section with. And this section of verses is weighty to the point that when he gets done with it, he actually offers a doxology. And we're going to read it here in a few moments. Like he, he brings it, that idea to a close. In fact, to the point that some people have argued that maybe this should, be, should have been the end of First Peter and that we don't know where the rest of the book came from. And that's not necessarily accurate because it's actually not that uncommon for uh, scripture writers. Paul did it some and Peter does it here to actually include a doxology partway through their book. But it's usually an indication of something that is, that is really important and the doxology, um, which we don't do a lot of here at Cornerstone, probably should more often, close our services with a doxology, which is essentially just that reminder of, of to sort of let what you heard sort of marinate and the, the, the big reason behind what we just heard. And so he ends with that doxology in this section where he just says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Like that's the big idea. Let's read the verses. 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 7. And he says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What Peter has done here is given some really practical um, directives in this passage, but he sandwiched them with two very important truths. And so what I want to do for this morning for the next few moments is kind of take this section of verses, this text, as a sandwich, sort of that idea. So I'm a little worried. I mean, we put the graphic up there of like the, the, the picture of a sandwich, 
And I'm worried that some of you are going to start imagining like the layers of meat and cheese and lettuce and all that, and you're going to get hungry and sidetracked, and all you're going to be able to think about is a sandwich from here on out. Stay with me for a few moments, okay? It's worth it. At the beginning, he puts, the end of all things is at hand, verse 7. Like this is, this is sort of a premise that he starts with. The end of all things is at hand. At the end, he says that we are to glorify God, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. These are the, the theological truths that are almost like bookends or the, the top and bottom, however you want to put it, of some things that he wants to say to them. So everything else that he says is premised on these truths, that the end is near and that in everything God is to be glorified. Now, we're comfortable talking about that in everything God is to be glorified. But we get a little squirmy when we talk about, well, the end is near. You know, we start picturing, you know, the cartoon character who's got the, you know, the sign standing beside the road and say, you know, the end is near, repent because the end is near. And the, re- the reason, really, that we're so uncomfortable with talking about the end is that we're so attached to the now. We love our lives here so much. But Peter is addressing, in the context of, of talking to believers who are going through difficult times, who are going through suffering, their lives have sort of been turned upside down. And Peter is addressing these people, and he's, he's taught them how to endure suffering. Last week, if you were here, you heard Billy talk about how he sort of turns a corner, and he, ta- he stops talking about enduring, and he talks about embracing it. Because it has value. But now he's giving them some directives like how do you live in light of the fact that life is short and that we're not going to be here forever. Someone asked Martin Luther one time, what would you do if you knew that the end was tomorrow? And he said, I'd plant a tree and pay my taxes. And he said, his point was, I would live like I live today, tomorrow. I would live like I live today. Because in his mind, the end could be at any point. And it might be tomorrow. And so he wanted to live, and we ought to live, as though that could be the case, because it could. And Peter is reminding his readers, the end is near. So, here's what I want you to do. And he gives them directives on how to live in light of these truths. The end is near, and everything is to glorify God through Jesus Christ. Point number one, Peter tells them, in light of those truths, be self-controlled. He uses these terms, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And if you kind of do some word study on those, they basically are repeating the same thing. They're basically saying the same thing. Be, be disciplined, he says. And then he even throws in this, this little um, for the sake of your praying. He says, because of these truths, the end is near. He says, be self-controlled, be disciplined. 
and praying for the sake of your praying. Now, I would love to know if you consider yourself a self-controlled person or not. Some of us, by temperament, are just more self-controlled, like very disciplined. We're, we're regimented. We have structure in our day, and we're careful about what we do and what we don't do, what we take in and what we don't take in. Some of us, just by our temperament and personality, are just very disciplined people. Some of us are not. I'm in the not category. We recently, our um, <coughs> excuse me, elder team did, all of us took temperament tests just out of curiosity, and it was a fun conversation. There's one of those temperaments that is colored yellow or called sanguine. The weakness of that temperament is that they tend to be very undisciplined. Guess who the one guy is on our leadership team that is yellow? <laughs> it's me. Now, the strength of the sanguine is that they love to communicate, so, you know, I, I, I get to do this. But it was kind of another one of those reminders that I'm going to need God's help because there is value in discipline and self-discipline and self-control because the opposite of that is being undisciplined and being controlled essentially by whatever the appetite of the moment is. In other words, whatever I feel like doing right then is what I'm going to do. That's the opposite of being self-controlled. Whatever I feel like saying, I'm going to just say it. Whatever I feel like eating, I'm going to eat it. However I feel like spending my time, that's how I'm going to spend my time. And the undisciplined, unself-controlled life is a life that ultimately has a throne and self is sitting on it. That's the problem. And he connects prayer to this idea because prayer is essentially... Me acknowledging the power and the sovereignty and the control of God. My dependence upon God. You've heard me say it many times. Prayer is my declaration of dependence on God. Prayerlessness is my declaration of independence from Him. When I'm not praying, I'm independent of, of God. I'm saying, Lord, I've got this. I can run my own life. I've, I can take care of it myself. When I am praying, I'm saying, Lord, I do depend on you and I need you. And I'm, and I'm lost without you. And so when Peter says, because the end is near, because our lives are called to glorify God, then let's be self-controlled, let's be sober-minded, disciplined people for the sake of our praying. In other words, and if I could rephrase this, I would say this, because the end is near, let's get ourselves off the throne. Let's stop serving ourselves and serve the one true God so that we can really pray for the sake of our praying. And all of us have moments, moments of crisis or moments of great need where we do pray. And we come and we start to pray, and Lord, I, I need this. I, I, I need you here. I want you here. And God would be justified in that moment, and thankfully his mercy is greater. But he would be justified in that moment 
for many of us to say, no, you've, you've spent the last weeks of your life living for yourself. Why would you suddenly want me now? The problem with living for ourselves is that we do not naturally even go to prayer then. The more that my life is disciplined and controlled by Jesus Christ, the more I will naturally turn to prayer in the situations of life. I'm amazed time and again in the conversations that I have with people how, incredible, um, how incredibly weighty crises that people will go through at times, and if I ask them, are you praying about it, they'll say, no, I'm not. And I think sometimes, how bad is it going to need to get before you start praying? Like, at what point will you decide that you need God? But the life lived for myself, where I am on the throne, where I am the one being served, where God is who I see in the mirror, is also a prayerless life that doesn't depend on God and that's independent from him. That's point number one. That Peter is saying, because of these truths, be self-controlled, be disciplined, and pray. And may I just add that the self-control that I feel like doing is usually not self-control. Like, discipline is literally doing the opposite at times from what I feel like doing because I know it's the right thing to do. It's the decision to do what is right instead of what is comfortable. And that is the essence of discipline. Secondly, he says, love one another earnestly. Love people earnestly. In light of these truths that we're just here for a short time, we're just here for a little bit, and that while we're here, we are called to glorify God in everything. We are self-controlled and praying. But we're also called to love each other earnestly, he says. And I left the word earnestly just the way it is in the text. Because I want us to just sort of think about this word a little bit. Again, if you sort of unpack the meaning of it, it has the idea of consistency, of faithfulness of regularity, loving each other with consistency and with regularity where it becomes a part of the rhythm of our life. That's not what the culture's definition of love is. The culture's definition of love is that you suddenly find yourself in a circumstance where you feel really good about someone else. In fact, you might even be really, really attracted to them. And you conclude that, I really love that person because I find them really attractive. And at no point is he saying, love each other when you're attracted to each other. This is, that isn't what the text says. He sort of flies in the face of what the culture tells us about love, and that is that when you find yourself feeling, well, feeling really good about someone else, when you find yourself attracted to them, that's love. Peter's saying, no, love is when you're consistent and you're kind and you're intentional about it. Plan to be loving. Plan for kindness. Put it on your calendar. Like, what would stop you 
from doing something loving for someone. Well, it's like, I don't feel like it. I don't want to right now. Of course you don't. Love is love. Never more is it love than in the moments when we actually don't really feel like loving them. When your spouse annoys you, and don't look at me funny, it happens to all of us, I know, we have a choice. Like we can continue in love, or we can say they don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. They haven't earned our love. And if that's the definition and the way that we live out this command to love one another, we are missing the glorious good news of the gospel completely. Because the glorious good news of the gospel is that while we were yet sinners, it says in Romans, God, Christ died for us. While we were most unlovable, Christ died for you and I to free us from our sins, to give us a new heart, to change us from the inside out and transform our lives. There isn't a moment in any of our history where we deserve that kind of love from God. God would have been justified many, many times in all of our lives to have burned us up with fire and judgment because we have never earned God's love. But God demonstrates his love for us. He makes it plain to us in that when we least deserved it, that he brings, that he offers his love for us. And then he calls us to take the love that we've received and to give it to others. And I like the fact that he uses this term earnestly when he says, love one another earnestly because he knows that you and I are not always going to feel loving. But life is short. We're only here for a little bit. And while we're here, our call is to glorify God. And so he says, love each other earnestly. Third point. He says, in light of these two truths, he says, show generous hospitality. Now, this doesn't need a lot of exegesis. Like, this is not hard to understand what it actually looks like to show generous hospitality. It literally means to have a life that is inviting other people in. To live a life that invites other people in. Does it mean having them over to your house? Yes, it does sometimes, but it's a much bigger picture than that. It means to live a life that invites other people in. That's dangerous, isn't it? We don't live very long until we figure out that inviting other people in actually is hurtful at times. Like if you would invite some friends over to your house, and every time they came over, valuables would go missing, or something got destroyed, we'd stop inviting them over, wouldn't we? But that's what we do with our lives, is as soon as we are hurt, by people, which is inevitable. People will disappoint us. We begin to bring the door shut and say, I'm never letting anyone in again. I'm not going to let myself get hurt like that again. 
And this idea of hospitality, it absolutely involves inviting people over your house, sure. But it's a bigger idea than that. It has to do with letting people into your life. And not only letting them in, but inviting them in. Knowing that at times, it's going to hurt. Knowing that at times, they are going to disappoint you. And some valuables might go missing. But to be generous in our hospitality. Because that's the idea that he shows. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I clean it up. I call it generosity. But when he says, be a hospitable person, invite people into your life, and he says, do it without grumbling. Why would he say that? Because he knows it's going to be messy. He knows this is going to get difficult. If you're going to invite people in and have more relationships, a larger group of friends, spend more time with people, you know it's going to get messy. It always gets messy because they're people. And so he says, he just kind of adds and he says, do this and do it without grumbling. Bring people into your lives. Don't be surprised by the mess that they bring with them. Guess what? You're bringing a mess into their life too. And they're going to need to tolerate you too. And me. And we all bring that mess with us. And in light of the fact that we're just here for a short time, and that we are called to glorify God while we are here, he says, be hospitable and do it without grumbling. Don't be surprised by the mess. People bring it with them. Let them in anyway. Your life will be richer. We were not called to live in isolation. We are, we are called to glorify God in the context of Christian community around other believers and relating to other believers, even when it gets messy. I mean, honestly, as people look at your life and my life, if they see me isolate from other people, I can talk about God and how he's changed me. He's given me so much love for people. He's given me a new heart. He's forgiven my sins. And I can talk about it. But if I'm isolated and I refuse to open my life to anyone else, if I refuse to invite people in, then it's a hollow message. It means nothing. But when they see me and when they see you being a hospitable person, who invites people into their lives, who's okay with friends who are kind of weird sometimes, who's okay with people disappointing them, they will glorify God because that's so countercultural. It's so un-American to have a life that is open to people who are very different than ourselves. We're very tribal. Like somebody needs to, they, they need to have about the same amount of money as us, they need to look like us, they need to vote like us, they need to think like us in order to be with us. And we're so tribal. And it's the opposite of being hospitable. And even when we do sort of step out of our comfort little bubble and we open our lives to somebody who's a little different, we go home and we gripe about how weird they are. And he's saying, in light of the fact 
that were just here for a short time. Be hospitable. Do it without grumbling. And then lastly, he talks, he takes a couple verses here, and he talks about using your gift. And he says in verse 10, he says, as each has received a gift. Now, aren't you glad that he didn't say, as some have received a gift? Because then that would mean that there's a few of us that have gifts from God and some don't. That's not what he says. And that language seems to be consistent with all of the rest of Scripture, the idea that each of God's children have been given a gift. That all of us have been gifted by the Holy Spirit in some area or another. And if you look at the other passages that talk about the gifts that God gives through the Holy Spirit, through the presence of His Spirit, you know that there are a lot of various gifts. In fact, Ephesians even uses that word. He says there is a variety of gifts. In other words, not everybody's gifted in the same way. Peter sort of gives some acknowledgement to this. In fact, he talks about, he says that there that each of us should have this gift and that we should use it as good stewards of God's varied grace. The language there is that God is loaning you a gift that he actually owns. You're just a steward. I'm just a steward. So what God has gifted you with, he has an intention behind it. He's given you a gift and he is, that he is asking you to steward it, to manage it, to handle it well, to invest it in people's lives. And I want to talk more about investment here in just a few moments. But you're just a steward. If you have a gift in any area, if you're gifted in making friends, or if you're gifted in making money, or if you're gifted... And I don't care what it is. I mean, I do care, but I, it doesn't matter what it is. The same truth applies that, the, that God has gifted you in that area so that you would steward it for his kingdom. He is loaning it to you. It's not yours. You're, you're, you're supposed to manage it. You don't own it. In other words, he didn't give it to you to make yourself look good. He gave it to you to make him look good. Are you using the gift that God gave you to make him look good? And that's why he says, if there's a gift of speaking, then you should do it as one who speaks oracles of God. That's not a word we're common, we commonly use is oracles, but the idea is this. If you are taking your gift, and if you're in a conversation, or if you're doing some teaching, or if you're mentoring, or if you're preaching, or whatever you're doing, do it based on God's word. Like, don't start with, I have some really important things to say. Start with, God has some important things to say. So he's saying, if you have a gift, as you, if the gift is speaking, and if you're sharing with people, if, it's, if there's anything about your gift that is verbal, then he says, make sure that it's grounded on God's word, not your own. This is why, by the way, that it is more and more important to me, the older I get, that the preaching, the teaching that I do, that it is grounded on Scripture and on God's Word. Because no one shows up here and really needs to hear what I have to say. It's not that important. All of us need to hear what God has to say. And that's his point. He's saying, in light of the fact 
that we're just here for a little bit. He gave you a gift. He gave me a gift. When you open your mouth and you use that gift, speak God's word. How are you going to speak it if you don't even know it? You got to get in it. You got to know it. Dig in it. See what he has to say. It's a revelation of who he is. It's his love letter to his children. He invites us to know him and he describes himself in his word. And as his spirit works in our lives and as he reveals himself to us as we read his words, as we study his words, we're changing the process. And suddenly we have less of a view of our own importance and a higher view of his importance. And we stop buying stock in our own cleverness and start investing completely in his wisdom because it's his words. And he says, so if you're using your gift, if you're stewarding your gift and you're opening your mouth, make sure that it's built on what God says, not just what you say. And he says, and if you're using your gift to serve someone, in verse 11, he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks as an oracle of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. See, so if your gift takes you to serving others, which they all do, then serve in God's power and not your own. People have tried to distinguish, you know, that, well, some people have speaking gifts, some people have serving gifts. I'm okay if that's the way you read that. I don't actually read it that way. I think that we have gifts, and at times we speak, and at times we serve. Because I don't personally see a speaking gift that doesn't also come in the context of servant, of being a servant. I don't even see a serving gift that doesn't also come in the context of human relationship and talking. And so, as we carry out our gifts, there are times when we need to open our mouths and do so based on the truths of God's word, to share the truths of God with other people, but there's also times when we just need to serve in anonymity where people may not even know what we're doing. But if you signed up to serve, if at some point in your life you've said, Lord, my life is not my own, it's yours. I just want to serve you. I will serve you, God. Whatever you want me to do, I'll go do. I promise you at some point you are going to get exhausted. It's tiring. If you're serving as a parent and you're serving the ministry of raising the next generation, it's exhausting. If you're serving in the context of a local church or a ministry or helping somebody in the community, there's a lot of ways that we serve, but it can be exhausting, and we are worn out. And for many, the natural conclusion then is to say, this is actually harder than I thought, so I, I think I'm going to play it safer and serve less and do less. And Peter is saying, no, let's go another route with that. Serve with God's power. Share his grace, the gift that he has given you, and do it with his power and his strength. Again, it takes us back to, we're going to have to get on our knees for this, aren't we? It's like, as, as I serve other people, as I meet their needs, 
I understand that my resources are limited. God's are unlimited. He's got it all. So we're going to have to get on our knees. As he who serves, as one who serves with God's power. That's the sandwich. The two truths. The end is near. While we're here, we're called to glorify God. And then how you do it. How do you do it? Discipline, prayer, love people consistently, show generous hospitality, invite people into your life, and then use your gift to share God's grace. The whole passage needs to be read in the context of investment. The idea that because I'm only here for a little bit, that I can make decisions that affect eternity while I'm here. And if you take away the context of investment or the idea of investment, it really actually becomes just a try-harder list of things to do. But if you look at it in the words of Jesus, like he said in Matthew in numerous places where he, he was very careful to communicate to us that there is reward coming for those who are good stewards. And I could take you to place, d- different places in the gospel. In Matthew chapter 19, he even says that to someone who, in, who invests or who gives up, who sacrifices, he's like, God will return a hundredfold. I don't know how many of your investments are yielding a hundredfold, like the 10,000%. None of mine ever have. And he's, he gives this idea over and over, and it's consistent in Scripture, that we are called to live our lives investing in the next life. That's the context. A number of years ago, I got a hold of a little book somebody recommended to me called um, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. And I highly recommend it. Um, Jump on Amazon and grab yourself a copy of The Treasure Principle. I promise you it'll make you so uncomfortable. But it will also address some things that, that you probably need to have addressed. But he uses an illustration in this book. He says, imagine that you traveled from one country to the next. So you're an American. And let's say that you traveled to France. And you're going to be in France for six months. While you're in France for six months, you can work and earn money. And you can spend as much of it as you want. You can also send it back to America. But when you get done with the six months, you can take nothing with you. You understand the, the, the context? So you're in another country, and you can make money, and you can send it home, or you can spend it there. But you know that at the end of the six months, you're going to get on a plane with nothing that you bought and none of your money, and you're going to go home. He says, in light of that scenario, would it change the way you spent your money while you're in France? Would you live differently? Would you be more inclined to say, I think I could do with less, And I think I could send it ahead because I'd rather have it when I get home. Now take that scenario and imagine 
that every dollar that you sent home, this isn't Randy's scenario, now I'm adding to his, but imagine that every dollar that you sent home, as soon as you sent it home, it begins to yield times 100. That it begins to multiply times 100. Would it change the way you lived while you were in France? And how much money you spent on yourself and how much money you sent home? That's where we are living right now. We are living in that point right now. Sermon in a sentence. Life is short, so invest in eternity for God's glory. Put that line on there, and if you can imagine that line going out the sides, past the screen, past the point that you can see in both directions where you don't understand, and even the line itself is a little bit of a poor illustration because even the line has like boundaries where eternity has no boundaries, but that's the idea. And somewhere is just that little blip in there, and it's our life. It's, it's that, that dash between our birth date and our death date. That's the little blip is our life. That's where we're at right now. Yeah, it may feel like the days are long, but the years are super short. And Scripture says that life is just a vapor. It's gone. We are not living in our permanent home. We're living in a temporary home. And it is that perspective that needs to be brought to the text that Peter is offering here. Because if all you hear is, man, you should be a better Christian, you should invest in people more, more faithfully so that God is pleased with you, I think we're missing the underlying truth behind it all. He's saying, I want to remind you, time is short here, life is short here. What are you doing to invest in eternity? Now, in this little book, one of the things that I love about it, and also one of the things that I really hate about it, is that he focuses primarily on money and the way that we spend our money. That's probably smart because that's where we really, really have a hard time. But I would submit that it's much broader than just our money. It's a life that is invested in people because people are the only thing that's here that really has eternal value. Your house is not going to eternity. Your car isn't going to eternity. Only people have eternal souls. So the stuff that we do that invests in the lives of people are the things that are sending it home, sending it out ahead. And what Peter has done is just unfolded a great model, a great picture of how we are to live our lives to send it out ahead. This little blip that we've got that we can make the investment ahead. You're like, man, man are you teaching like some kind of works-based judgment? No. But if you read 1 Corinthians 2, 3, and 4 in there, there is this idea that is unfolded there, that each of us will one day receive reward for our works. And it says in that passage, it says, and these will not lose their salvation. He's saying our salvation is secure in the work of Jesus Christ. We believe this as Christians. 
You can't add to, you can't do enough to earn the, the saving grace of God. It's received by faith. But it's also clear that for those of us who are the children of God, that we've been given opportunities and gifts, relationships that we are stewards of. He's saying you can invest them in eternity or you can spend them on yourself. You decide. But I'm telling you, in light of the fact that the end is near, that time is short, and I'm not saying that Christ is going to come back tomorrow. He could. It'd be cool if he did. And we're going to unpack some more of that as we get into Second Peter, and it even kind of describes why he hasn't yet, which is kind of fascinating, so you're not going to want to miss that. But in light of the fact that life is short, even if we all live to be 110 years old, it's still going to be short compared to eternity. In light of the fact that God has called us to glorify his name while we are here, how are we to live? We're to live as investors, people who are investing in a home that we have not yet seen. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about people like that. It says they believed in a city that they had not yet seen. And it says that they made these decisions in faith. They trusted God, took him at his word. Whatever he said, they just believed it. And they lived their lives that way. And it says they, they believed in a city that was yet to come, that they had not seen yet what God had in store for them, but they believed it in faith and they lived their lives accordingly. That's exactly what he's talking about. And you know what it says in Hebrews chapter 11 about that group of people? It says that, they, that, that the world was not worthy of them. And I just find that so amazing, that God would actually look at a group of people and say because of their faith, the planet wasn't even worthy of them. Like, that's, that's a commendation from Almighty God. Was it, it was a group of people whose faith was so strong, they believed in a city whose builder and maker was God, and they lived their lives accordingly, and they invested in the future. What are you doing to invest in the future? I'm not talking about five years, ten years. What are you doing to invest in eternity? Are you touching anyone's life? Are you pointing anyone to Jesus? Are you caring about somebody's need, loving them, even when it costs and even when it means sacrifice? I promise you, it's the best investment you can make. It's the best investment. I mean, sure, I'd love to make this all about, you know, giving money, make you feel really guilty because you're not giving more to the church. And you should feel guilty about that. I'm kidding. But it is bigger. It's about investing in eternity. Um, investing in people's lives. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come on up. I want to pray. And what I'd like to do this morning is I want to pray and then I'd like for us to recite that last phrase together all in unison at the end of my prayer, and I'll prompt you to do it, where it just says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That's a great way to close this, isn't it? To him, that's Jesus, belongs glory, like the weighty presence, and dominion, that's control of everything. Dominion means he is in charge of it all, and it belongs to him. He's earned the right. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's not temporary. It's forever. 
and ever. Don't miss the weight of the doxology in the poetry of it. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you call us um, to glorify your name and not our own, <coughs> to invest in your kingdom, not our own. Thank you that you strengthen us. Thank you that you provide for us. And uh, thank you that you invite us to be about your work. God, help us to be more faithful. Help us to be more humble and open our eyes to the opportunities to invest in eternity for your glory. And then all together, let's say it together. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Let's say it again. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and sing this last song.